remain standing for our sermon text. Our epistle lesson is from Romans 8 as we make our way through the book of Romans. I'm only going to read two verses, the two verses that are highlighted in your handout in the scripture reading, verses 7 and 8. Listen to God's infallible word. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it is not subject to the law of God, and neither is it able to be. Those who are in the flesh are unable to please God. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to your word again, and as we meditate on it, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this for the sake of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The story's been told and retold of an incident in the life of William Wilberforce. That was the man who led the movement to abolish slavery in the, in the British Empire during the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Wilberforce was a committed Christian. His friend, William Pitt, the younger, uh, who was prime minister of England, was not so committed. He was a baptized, church-going man. But Wilberforce was not at all convinced that Pitt knew the Lord. He, he was a nominal Christian. In fact, Wilberforce was quite concerned about his friend Pitt's salvation. And he was constantly trying to get the, the prime minister to go with him to hear the great evangelical preacher of London, Reverend Richard Cecil, who was known for being fiery, for being spirited and lively in his preaching. So Pitt uh, kept putting Wilberforce, uh, Wilberforce off, but eventually, after many invitations, Pitt agreed to go hear Cecil preach. One description of the event puts it this way. Wilberforce was ecstatic. He couldn't imagine anything more enjoyable or wonderful. He was delighted that Pitt was with him. But as they were leaving the service afterward, Pitt turned to his friend and said, You know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man has been talking about. End quote. So, Clearly, Pitt was deaf and blind to God as if he were a physically dead man. The person whose mind is set on the things of the flesh cannot comprehend the things of the spirit. Not because he's unintelligent, but because he's spiritually unwilling, spiritually unable to understand spiritual things. Prime Minister Pitt was obviously an intelligent man, well-schooled. But intelligence provides no spiritual advantage. The problem was not that Pitt was intellectually incapable. The problem was that his mind was hostile to God. He was spiritually incapable of submitting himself to the clear teaching of the Word of God as it was proclaimed with clarity and power. What's interesting about this incident is that, as I said, Pitt was a member of the church. 
And so I don't know uh, much about him, but we can uh, guess that uh, he, he would have claimed to be a Christian, obviously, and he was surely catechized. He was instructed in the faith. He was a, surely a, a well-read man, uh, had read the scriptures. My guess is that he could have passed a theology exam on the gospel and on the authority of God's word and those sorts of things. He, he would have known a lot of right answers. And yet, according to the testimony of Wilberforce, at least, Pitt was spiritually blind and deaf. And his response to gospel preaching seemed to confirm that he was unwilling to let the truths of the gospel penetrate his soul. Unable to, he was unable to respond to God's word with faith, which is what pleases God. Now, this, this story resonates with many conversations I've had over the years, over the decades, with baptized church members who know their Bibles, often even know their Reformed theology, but whose hostile minds will not allow them to submit, to understand and submit to what God's Word requires of them. An extreme example of this, of what I'm talking about, is the case of a Reformed pastor many years back that no one here knows. I didn't even know him that well. I only knew well uh, friends who were under his ministry at one point who decided that his secretary rather than his wife was his true soulmate. And when people confronted him with God's word, he had all kinds of reasons why his situation was different. This, this was a man who had to pass rigorous ordination exams, theological exams, to become a Reformed pastor in the PCA, but he didn't have the slightest idea what the gospel of Jesus Christ was about. He was totally unwilling, totally unable to submit to God and his word. I, I could also tell stories on the other side where I've talked with folks who would have no reason, given their upbringing, their background, the life of sin and the lack of discipleship that they've had, have no reason to understand the word of God and the scriptures and the gospel, and I'll meet with them and talk to them, and everything is making sense. The preaching of God's word is just clicking, and they're seeing things. But I've talked also to more than one baptized church member with similar hostility toward God as these other stories, though it's never recognized or acknowledged as such. When, when you call such a person to humbly turn away from their sin to God, you are met with resistance rather than repentance. Excuses instead of godly sorrow over sin. Pride instead of humility. Evasion instead of accountability. They're often convinced that they know God. They can't see that their minds are set on the things of the flesh. Ever since Paul's day, there have been those who claim to be Christians but who showed no signs of being such and actually do show signs of still being in the flesh. In fact, this phenomenon goes all the way back to the days of Jesus himself. And Jesus speaks to this particular point at length in more than one place, but especially in Luke 13 in his teaching on the narrow way. Remember what he says there, Luke 13, 22 to 28. Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, 
someone asked him. Are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. There will be many, Jesus says, not a few, but many, who will eat and drink with him. Listen, they will listen to his teaching, even doing so every week, perhaps, for their entire lives, but who will find themselves, who will find out on the last day that they never actually ended the hostilities between them and God. Never actually humbled themselves before God and his word, subjected themselves to God and his word, to use Paul's language in our text today. Never actually pleased God because they never had living, active, obedient, repentant faith in Jesus. In verses 7 and 8, Paul takes us inside the mind of those who are still in the flesh. And we, we've talked in previous weeks that those in the flesh are unbelievers. There, there are no in-the-flesh Christians, carnal Christians. In other words, carnal true believers. In the flesh means not in Christ in a saving way. Those who don't know God are in the flesh. And so he takes us inside the mind of unsaved, unregenerated Regenerated means born again. Those who have not been born again. And he says three things about them. First, in verse 7, and it's three different sentences. Those in the flesh are hostile toward God. Second, also in verse 7, those in the flesh cannot submit to God. They're unable. And then third, in verse 8, those in the flesh cannot please God. Now, before we jump into verses 7 and 8, let me just spend three or four minutes explaining the, the doctrinal or theological perspective of these verses. Today's text teaches us, it lays the groundwork for the first point of what's often referred to as the five points of Calvinism. Maybe you've heard of those. And sometimes the first point is called total depravity, which is an okay term. But another name that I like better is total inability. Maybe you've heard it referred to as that. I didn't make that up. Uh, total inability refers to the total inability of human beings to love God, obey him, trust him, pursue him, make any movement, any positive movement toward God. No one comes into the world naturally able to delight in God's law or to submit to it, subject himself to it. No one is naturally able to please God with, with saving faith, which is what pleases, pleases God. Everyone by nature is hostile to God. We come into the world at war with our maker, with our creator. 
Paul says that no one is naturally able to understand the things of the Spirit. In another place, 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says the natural man, the natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for the things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural person. The natural person means the person not born again, the unregenerated person. And he, and he goes on, and he is not able, that, that, that language of being able, cannot, he is not able to understand them, the things of the Spirit, because they must be spiritually discerned. So you have to be spiritually minded to understand the things of the Spirit. And this is the doctrine of total inability. This describes Wilberforce's friend, Prime Minister Pitt. The difference uh, between, by the way, total depravity, the reason I think this is a better term, but the difference between total depravity and total inability is that everyone is totally depraved till the end of our lives. But only unbelievers are, are still spiritually totally unable to, to move toward God, to obey, to do anything good. Christians and non-Christians alike in this life, we all remain totally corrupt, totally depraved, thoroughly corrupted by sin, all the way down to our core. And, and this radical corruption has, has corrupted every fiber of our being, every aspect of our personhood. And, and this remains the case even after we've been saved, even after we've been given a new nature. Born-again Christians are still thoroughly depraved, which is why we, have, we continue to have those Romans 7 experiences in this life. We've been given a new nature, it's true, but it's also true that in every aspect of our being, in body and in soul, we're still tainted by sin. And the old sinful nature still exists in us, and it influences, it, it doesn't go away. It influences our actions and motivations at every turn. We're always fighting it. We always have more progress, more sanctification to, to do, to make. Um, so even our righteousness is, is tainted by sin because everything we do is tainted by sin. We don't do anything uh, with the kind of purity that, that God does things with. And so we remain thoroughly corrupted by sin until death. However, believers are not totally unable. We're no longer totally unwilling and totally unable to obey God and please God. And pursue God. Born-again Christians are no longer fundamentally hostile to God. And this is important. So this is one of the points that Paul is wanting to make in this larger passage, is that there's a difference here between ability and willingness. And it's the basic difference between believers, true believers, and between true believers and unbelievers. And verses 7 and 8 take us in the, inside the mindset of those who are still totally unwilling, totally unable to make positive movement toward God. And these two verses establish the doctrine of total inability, part of what establishes it, not the only passage, the first point of Calvinism. So I included in your handout last week's outline to help you see uh, how today's text, text relates to last week's message. And if you'll notice, I highlighted point two. A, because today's sermon really is an expansion of that point from last week. Paul's unpacking for us what it means for a person to be of the mindset of the flesh, for a person to have his mindset on the things of the flesh. It means that the person is totally unwilling and unable to do anything good or godly. So let's reread the two verses and then consider Paul's three sentences 
one at a time. Verse 7, for the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it is not subject to the law of God, and neither is it able to be. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh are unable to please God. So the first point is that those in the flesh are hostile toward God. Unbelievers don't love God. They hate God. And that may not seem, that, that may seem counterintuitive when you think about some people that you know that you know are not believers. So you may be thinking, well, I know a lot of non-Christians who don't, you know, it seems too strong to say that they hate God, that they're hostile toward God. I, you know, I have family and uh, friends who are probably going to hell, but they don't have anything against God. They're not outwardly antagonistic toward God. In fact, they even have a soft, a soft spot for religious talk or God talk. They, they know God is real and, and great and good. They might even say they should be doing better to obey him. They're just not interested in becoming Christians. <coughs> Excuse me. We've all known and met countless people like this. We may live around many people like that. And most of us have heard countless songs on the radio, right, that speak favorably of God, maybe especially in the, in the country music department. But, you know, from country songs to rock and roll songs to folk songs to pop songs, and many of them are sung by unbelievers. And so, and so it's not uncommon to to, find, to hear somebody like Bob Dylan or Madonna singing about God and prayer to God. You'd have a difficult time finding an unbeliever in Springfield who has anything hostile to say about God. Most of the people I've met who are in bondage to drugs will tell you how much they love God and how important God is to them. Maybe that's because I'm a pastor and I have a collar on sometimes. Uh, but if, if you polled the citizens of any small town around here and asked them if they think it's a good idea to pray to God before the football game on, on Friday night, just about 100% of the people would vote to have a prayer before the game, even though we know that not 100% of them are genuine believers. So isn't it a bit of an overstatement to say that unbelievers, those still in the flesh, those who have not converted to Christ, who have not been born again, to say that they're all hostile toward God? Is, is that not an overstatement? Aren't a lot of nice people and country folk around here uh, sort of just spiritually neutral? Doesn't that seem like a like a better way to frame it? Is it necessary to conclude that they're hostile to God? Yes, it is, because the Bible draws a hard line between God-haters and God-lovers. Either you're a God-lover or a God-hater. You're a God-lover because God has changed your heart and he's made you one of his children, or you're a God-hater because uh, you don't want God to rule over you and tell you what to do. A lot of unbelievers are spiritual or religious, but their religion is one they've created for themselves, and their God is one they've created in their own image who serves them. 
their God and their religion are tailor-made to suit their preferences, their needs, their felt needs. They come to God on their own terms and use him for their own purposes. We could probably say that many, if not most, God-haters are indifferent toward God. They appear indifferent toward God. If you ask them, they would say that they don't necessarily love God, but they certainly don't hate him. They're just apathetic, uninterested. They have better things to do with their time. They've got other interests, other concerns, other priorities, and God just doesn't fit into the schedule, into the grand plan. They don't have anything against God, they would probably tell you. They just don't have any time for God. But indifference toward God is also hostility toward God. If a person doesn't love him, he still hates him even if his hostility is not blatant, flagrant. Many God-haters are in church every week, and some are good at paying lip service to God and the Christian faith. Paul is writing this to a church. He's writing this expecting it to be read in the churches. And he's not only talking about those outside the churches. These folks appear very pro-God, but everyone who is still in the flesh, everyone who has not been born again, is still, despite outward appearances, at enmity with God. Unregenerated people are not spiritually neutral. They're spiritually opposed to God, even if it doesn't seem obvious. A good rule of thumb that we would probably all agree with in life is that before you make an enemy, make sure that he's not bigger and stronger and smarter than you are. The problem, though, is that we all come into this world hostile toward God, having made God our enemy. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, that all of us, by nature, were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, he says. And so he said, but he's saying everyone, including us. We were all, by nature, that means when we came into the world, by nature, children of wrath. We came into the universe hating God, deserving wrath. Now, you would think that as soon as we were able... All of mankind would scramble to figure out how to end that hostility between us and God. And how, do, how, can, we, how can I become God's friend? That, you would, that would be the logical, the reasonable thing to do. You would think that as soon as every human figured out that he was at war with the infinitely powerful God of heaven and earth, he would call for a ceasefire. He would desperately look for a way to make peace. But that's not how it plays out. Because our hostility toward God is who we are, as Paul says, by nature. It's not just what we do. It's who we are. And what we do flows from who we are. And we can't change it. Only God can change us. Unbelievers are unwilling Unable to end the hostilities, unable to do anything but continue defying God because of who we are. 
by nature. The only thing they can do, the only thing we can do by nature before God saved us is to disobey God's law. Unbelievers are only willing and able to worship the God they've created for themselves, which is ultimately the self, instead of the God who created them. Now, by way of contrast, and next week we're going to dive into the contrast as Paul turns to the other side, to believers. You, know, you however, are, are different, he's going to say, but we can still, we need, we need to anticipate the contrast now. And by way of contrast, those who set their minds on the Spirit have been transformed into God lovers. You're not a God hater, believer. You're a God lover. Because God's Spirit lives in us, believers, we're able to love God. And we seek to love Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. We genuinely love Christ. You, if you're a Christian walking with the Lord, you love Christ, who left the glory of heaven to die on a cross for you. And so we're no longer at war with God. And we want to avoid doing anything that will hinder our fellowship with him. God has made us able to do the reasonable thing that we ought to have done. So Paul teaches in the first sentence, in the first half of verse 7, that the mindset of the flesh is not neutral toward God. Rather, it's hostile toward God, opposed to him at every turn, enmity with him. So in the second sentence, in point two, in the second half of verse seven, Paul teaches that those in the flesh cannot submit to God. It's not just that unbelievers don't, you know, they're, they're just not willing, but they could. No, the underlying problem, Paul says, is that they can't. There's a, they're unwilling and unable all the way down. No part of them is willing and able to do otherwise. The unbeliever is always saying to God, not your will, but my will be done. Again, by contrast, those who set their minds on the spirit can and do submit to God's word. In fact, one of the most obvious signs of conversion, I believe, is the readiness and willingness to put oneself under Scripture, under the doctrines of Scripture, and under the demands of Scripture, to believe it and to do it. That's one of the most obvious signs of conversion. John Calvin said that he could virtually pinpoint his conversion as an adult. By the way, this, doesn't have, this kind of a testimony doesn't have to be true of everyone. Everyone is, is unique in this way. But he, he says... Uh, he, he basically pinpoints it to the moment or the, you know, the general time when God made him submissive to God's word in a way that he wasn't, you know, whether it's the day before, the week before, the month before. He saw this change. And here's how Calvin put it in his own words. He said, by a sudden conversion, so it sounds like it's, Less than a week, probably less than a day, maybe. I don't know. By a sudden conversion, God subdued my mind and brought it to a teachable frame. Before his conversion, Calvin was unteachable in his own testimony. His mind, was, his mind um, wasn't submissive to the word of God. But when God's spirit entered Calvin, he said, he said that he instantly, suddenly, is his word, 
humbled himself before the teachings and the commandments of Scripture. One of the members of this congregation will tell you something similar about his conversion. If you were to ask him to tell you about his conversion to Christ as an adult, he will probably tell you, as he has told me before, of the experience that he had while reading God's word. As he picked up the scriptures and began to read them, something spiritually miraculous had happened. For the first time, he, he knew in his heart that what he was reading was, is true and that God was calling him to believe it and to subject himself to it. I'm not going to say who the, who the person's, you know, what the person's name is, but I'll give you a hint. He's in the sanctuary here today. And, and when you find out who it is, um, if you don't already know who it is, maybe you already know, uh, come and tell me. I'd be curious to know if you found out. And, and it's a good idea for us to get to know one another and specifically to know one another's spiritual journeys, how, what, how, how God has brought us to where we are by the power of his spirit. So find out who it is and then come and tell me. Maybe there's a prize. I don't know. The best way to determine whether your mind is set on the flesh uh, or on the spirit is to ask yourself, do I have a teachable and submissive heart to God's word? And your answer to that question has to go beyond just having a high view of scripture. It's not enough to hold to the inspiration and infallibility of the Bible. It's not even enough to hold to the difficult, hard to understand, difficult to accept doctrines of Scripture like the Trinity or eternal hell or predestination or the two natures of Christ. The real test is whether you submit to God's word. That's what Paul says here. They are not able to subject themselves to God's word. Are you submissive to God's word when it tells you to do something you really don't want to do or when it tells you not to do something, to stop doing something that you really love to do. If you say with your mouth, God's law alone is my standard, by, you know, by no other standard. God's word is holy and true and pure and inerrant. The B-I-B-L-E is the book for me. But you say with your actions, not thy will, but my will be done. Then scripture isn't actually your authority. And that's a, that's a dangerous place to be in. Some of the most disturbing, some of the most unsettling experiences, conversations, I guess I should say, I have as a, as a pastor is talking with confessing Christians who have told me that they cannot stop breaking God's law. You know, where the person sitting in my office tells me in so many words that they know they're not going to be able to submit to God's law in a certain area. And there's almost a giving up. The reason this is troubling to me is that Scripture clearly teaches in multiple places, not least here in Romans 8, 7, that it is unbelievers who cannot submit to God's law. It is unbelievers who cannot grow in grace and in holiness, the grace and holiness of God that God requires and that God works in us. Believers can subject themselves to God's law, not perfectly, not sinlessly, of course, but we can 
subject ourselves to the word of God, to the requirements of God, because we have a new nature and God's spirit lives in us. Paul said up in verse 4, it's on your handout, that if your sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus, if they've been condemned in the flesh of Christ, the result is that you can and you will, Paul says. They're just, he doesn't say anything about can. He says you will. Like this is what's, is is what's going to happen because you can. You can and will obey the law of God. You can and will walk according to the Spirit. Are you able to submit to God and his law? If not, you need to repent and come to Christ and be born again. If you truly can't. When God saves you, you will love God and his word. You will know that the scriptures are true and you will begin a lifelong journey of sub subjecting yourself to everything they require of you. God will begin that good work in you and then complete it on the last day when he makes you perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, thoroughly godly. In verse 8, Paul says, finally, point 3, that those in the flesh cannot please God. This is very similar to the previous point, so I won't belabor it. But twice now, Paul has expressed the inability of unregenerated persons, people. Unbelievers cannot do anything good or holy or obedient. The reason is that they only have a sinful nature, and so they only produce sin. Believers have two natures. There are our old sinful nature that lingers in this life until death, and then, then the new nature in Christ. We were new creations in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. But unbelievers only have the old sinful nature directing everything, which explains their inability to do anything holy, good, righteous, pleasing to God. A pig is free to act in line with its pig nature, but it's completely unable to act in line with a human nature. In the same way, the unregenerated person, an unbeliever, is free to act in line with its sinful nature. He's free to act in accordance with the flesh, but he's completely unable to act like a born-again Christian. He cannot act in accordance with the Spirit because he doesn't have the Spirit, as Paul will say in the next passage. Ephesians 2 says that the unregener that, that unregenerated sinners are dead in their trespasses and sins. Not in a coma, but dead. And we know that dead people cannot rise them cannot raise themselves from the dead. They they don't have the ability to self Resurrect. 2 Corinthians 4 says that the unregenerated sinner has been blinded by Satan. And we know that blind people cannot make themselves see. Jesus taught in John 6 that no person, this is one of the foundational passages for the doctrine of total inability. He says in John 6 that no person is able to come to him unless the Father draws that person, drags that person to Christ. And then a couple chapters later in John 8, Jesus asked the unbelieving Jews a question. 
having to do with their total inability. He says, why don't you understand what I'm saying? Now, it was the answer that they, they didn't have the intellectual capacity. They didn't know the vocabulary he was using. They couldn't understand his sentence structures. But are those the answers? No. He gives the answer in the very next sentence. It's because you cannot hear my word. You cannot hear. Now, were they, their ears were, their, these were working. Their physical ears were working. But Jesus says, you cannot, you are unable to hear my word. So obviously, they hear the sentences, the words that Jesus is saying. The problem was that they lacked the spiritual ability to hear the word of God with faith that leads to repentance and obedience. Faith that produces fruit. In verses 7 and 8, Paul gives us the spiritual anatomy of the mindset of the flesh. At least a thumbnail sketch of it. The unregenerated person, which means the person not born again, has no spiritual life, and he is hostile to God. He does not and cannot submit to God or please him. He can't find it within himself, within himself to subject himself to God's commandments, to God's word. This means that being born again isn't something that any human can accomplish in his own strength. It, as John 1, 13 puts it, it, being born of God isn't the result of the will of the flesh or the will of man. Being born of God is solely the result of God's regenerating grace and power. God alone gives spiritual, spiritually dead people the new birth, new life. Salvation is from the Lord from beginning to end. If you've been converted to Christ, if God has given you the new heart, if you have his spirit, if he has given you the ability to subject yourself to God and his word, if he's given you the desire and the ability to please God, if you're no longer at war with God and his law, then God has done a mighty work in you. And this work was 100% the work of God and 0% your work. What are the implications of this? I'm going to leave you just with two quick implications. First, remember when you share the gospel with people that God alone can convert them to Christ. You can't. So avoid getting enmeshed in intellectual debates about whatever, the proofs for God's existence or the reliability of Scripture. It's not that those don't have any place at all. Really, they have more of a place in, in for they, they serve believers better than they do unbelievers usually. They help us and confirm us in what we know is true by God's grace. But instead, focus on the heart issues. Think about, pray about, consider the, what's going on inside the person. Focus on the person's rebellion and refusal to subject himself to God and his word. It's good to have sound arguments and solid answers, but never forget that logical arguments don't have the power in themselves to convert anybody, to change anyone's mind. And so before you spend hours, you know, at your keyboard, uh, you know, 
convincing somebody on the internet of, of, of things, uh, just remember that that's not your logical arguments and your ability to debate is not what's going to get somebody into the kingdom. People get saved when God opens their eyes and changes their hearts. And oftentimes our debating and, and all that just is just more of a, a roadblock than anything else. And, and this is why it's always far more important to pray for the person you want to be saved than to argue with that person. No one has ever been argued into the kingdom of God, but millions of people have been prayed into the kingdom of God. Second, once again, Paul creates an opportunity for self-evaluation, self-examination. Now, on, on the surface, the, you know, these verses seem maybe negative. Maybe this has been a, a, a sermon that maybe seems like a, a downer sermon in some ways. But for the believer, these, these verses about a, a, an important truth, an important reality, are, are a source of assurance and encouragement and joy and thanksgiving for what God has done in us, through us, for us, what he's accomplished, the changes that he has made, the transformation that he has accomplished in believers. The, the person who has been born of God will read these verses and, and read rightly, he will immediately see the contrast between himself and the mindset of the flesh described in verses 7 and 8. And, and if, if the person is an adult convert who has memory of living in the flesh for a long time, he or she will be able to see the contrast in their own life. He will be able to see that he is not hostile to God anymore, either in his heart or in his actions. He is, he is able to submit to God. God is growing him in holiness because God's spirit has enabled him to walk in the newness of resurrection life. He is able to please God because God's spirit lives in him. He is able to work out his salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in him both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Before we move on to, before we move on next week to Paul's description of the believer in the following verses, everyone should ask himself, herself, have I been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus so that I'm now at peace with God? Am I, am I God's friend or are there still hostilities? Do I subject myself to God and his word? Am I able to submit to God's law or am I spiritually unable? If this passage confirms in your mind, uh, it, it confirms to you that you, your mind is set on the things of the spirit, give thanks to God for his mighty work, for giving you the new birth, for doing what you could not do in your heart. But if this passage reveals that your mind is still set on the things of the flesh, st stop worshiping yourself. Run to Christ. 
run to the cross and submit yourself to God in humility and true repentance. Let's pray. Oh God, use your word to confirm your people in the truth. Use your word to encourage your people with the assurance of their salvation because of what you've done for them. And use your word to convict those who are still in the flesh to truly repent, to truly humble themselves before you, and to be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.